Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Eyewitness. One of my favorite Greek words is the word martyria, which is where we get the word martyr from, which basically means someone who witnessed an event. True martyrdom is what every Christian does day in and day out. We have witnessed, by hearing and believing the gospel, the work of Calvary, and we will declare, even at the cost of our own life, the glories we have seen. Indeed, this is what all the prophets, apostles, and saints throughout the ages have fearlessly proclaimed. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. The eyewitness. It's an interesting statement because we know what a witness is. It's someone who has actually observed something very specifically. And in a court of law, a witness is very, very important. And so why add the word I, witness? Well, there's all sorts of ways that you could be a witness. You could overhear something. You could uh, encounter something as a result of something else. But an eyewitness is someone who is there and who sees it. And that's a very, very important thing in what we're about to talk about One of the things we've said many times over at Ellerslie is, it's a statement, have you seen the cross? And you could say, well, uh, the cross, you mean like one of those things where two pieces of wood sort of form a T-like structure? Yeah, but I don't just mean, have you seen a cross? Have you seen the cross? You mean the cross that Jesus died on? I don't think it's still standing. You see, it's interesting, but in Christianity... There's this idea that you must see it for yourself. You can't borrow someone else's eyesight. In other words, I could tell you that I have beheld the glory and the majesty of Jesus. And you could say, like, you saw it with your eyes? Well, sort of, but not the way you think I mean it. I mean, my soul has beheld it. You see, there's eyes of the soul, and they've been blind. But the Spirit of God touches the human soul and awakens it, and suddenly we see. We see something. And though it happened 2,000 years ago, and though this man named Jesus walked and lived 2,000 years ago, we see him today, for he lives. And we behold his majesty. And we become eyewitnesses of that majesty. And so that's part of what this message is about, but I need to build a case. The eyewitness. 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What an interesting statement. So Peter is making a statement, and I'm going to build on this throughout this message, that he's saying that he was an eyewitness, but he's saying we were eyewitnesses. It wasn't just a singular, it was a we. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The long history of the eyewitness. The witness of the eye. There are men and women throughout history that have beheld something with their eye. God has revealed to them something in a tangible way, not just audible, but with their eye, and they have beheld it. And in the Old Testament, we have a pattern. And that same pattern is realized in the New Testament, but the way in which we see is different. And so, let's begin Introducing a key idea. We're going to call it the pattern. I, don't, I didn't make up that term, but depending on which translation you use, the pattern is an important concept in Scripture. In the New Testament, oftentimes the pattern is referred to as the example. But there seems to be an architectural design that is laid out in the Old Testament. It is given. And those that witness it 
are witnessing it because God himself has revealed it to them. Isn't that a strange thought to think of God revealing an architectural blueprint? He lays it out before Moses and he says, do you see this? And I don't know how much time Moses spent studying it. I don't know exactly what it looked like because we do not have any details in scripture of how God shared it with him. All we know is that Moses was an eyewitness to a pattern and it was shown to him in a mountain. So, as it oftentimes says in Scripture, as shown thee in the mount. Moses was shown something. He saw something. And what was that something? It was a pattern. A pattern of what? Well, let's, let's begin our journey. The pattern has been entrusted. So there is this pattern out there. There is an architectural blueprint of something. I'm going to get to what that something is as we progress. But it's something. And it is handed off to Moses. That is not an accident. If any of you have ever heard the message canon, you understand that canon is the word of God. It is the 66 books of the Bible, and they have been built a very specific way, endorsed by God, sustained by God, preserved by God. However, who wrote the first five? It was Moses. And Moses is an eyewitness. And what you'll see in and through the formation of canon is this, this eyewitness concept is that they see something. The pattern has been revealed to them. So the pattern is entrusted, first, to Moses. There's a lot of characters in the Bible before Moses, but Moses is the first one to become an eyewitness of this pattern. It does not mean that those that came before Moses did not know God, because Abraham knew God and called him friend. However, there is something that is being revealed with Moses. And it is very, very critical. And something is being established with Moses, which is known as Scripture, which is known as the canon of God, the testimony, so that others may see. So to Moses, and I just put a compilation here. Instead of giving each individual Scripture, I sort of put them all together so you could see how many times in Scripture this is said. And it's actually said more than this, by the way. But these are very clear on it. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Moses is being commanded by God to make a tabernacle, a place or a dwelling place in which God will reside in the midst of Israel. What a strange concept. To actually build a house. Now, it's more like a tent, and yet it's a house. It's a dwelling. It's an abode. And there's a very specific way that Moses must make it. How is he to make it? According to a pattern. You know that God, if you read scripture, that you can read the measurements of the tabernacle, you can read all sorts of things, but you would have a very difficult time building it. You'd say, what does he mean by that? You see, you didn't see the pattern. You only have the measurements and the descriptions of things. And uh, put a palm tree on that. You're like, what in the world? What is that supposed to look like? And the cherubims, yes, their wings are supposed to touch. What does a cherubim look like? How would you know these things? You see, Moses saw something. It was revealed to him in the mountain. So it says, and look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. And, thus shalt thou, and thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. And this work of the candlestick was of beaten gold under the shaft thereof, under the flowers thereof, was beaten work according unto the pattern. You see, Moses, even down to the details, understood how to tell the artisans what to do. 
He saw something. What did he see? So which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the candlestick. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Moses saw something. Are you getting that point? Am I, am I making that clear yet? Who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. By the way, this is in the New Testament. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he saith, for see, saith he, that thou, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Moses was, was shown something by God. We weren't there. We don't fully understand this, but he seemed to see the heavenly pattern of what we know as a tabernacle, a dwelling place. He saw it. The pattern was entrusted to Moses. Now what's strange is that what we see in the pattern in the tabernacle in the wilderness is very similar to what we see in something in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. And that is the first revelation. He comes with, covered with badger skin, a tent, a humble tent. And yet, as that tabernacle begins to progress through history, you'll notice that it goes from being a tent to a glorious, beautiful structure. And the same thing we see with Jesus Christ. And so I'm giving you a huge hint there that the pattern revealed to Moses is actually not just a building. It was a person. And the Bible is built on eyewitness account of men seeing a pattern. And when men see that pattern, God says, write that down. Show it to the people. What are they writing down? Measurements? Candlesticks? Flowers? They're writing down the measurements of righteousness. They're writing down the perfect pattern. And so I'll build towards that. I'm giving way too much away, and I don't know. I might have blown my whole message by giving way too much away too quickly. But if you've been here for any length of time, you know that's where every message goes anyways. <laughs> to David and to Solomon. Isn't this interesting that David actually received a pattern as well? He received a pattern for the temple. This is just extraordinary. Listen to this. Then David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern. David gave a pattern unto Solomon. Solomon built the temple. So he gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and of the treasuries thereof and of the upper chambers thereof and of the inner parlors thereof and of the place of the mercy seat. And the pattern of all that he had, how did he have it? He had it by the Spirit. Somehow David had a pattern. How did he have a pattern? How did Moses have a pattern? How did anyone in the Old Testament have a pattern? It was by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and of all the chambers round about, of the treasuries of the house of God and of all the treasuries of the dedicated things. All this said David, listen to this line. This is one of the most intriguing lines. I could do a whole message, just focus on this line. All this said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. What in the world is that? Even all the works of this pattern. Somehow David has been imparted and has beheld a pattern. And he knows how to pass it on to his son. So that when Solomon builds the temple, 
He is building it according to what the Spirit of God has revealed to the prophets. You know that all throughout the Bible, what you're going to see is that men and women of God, well, I should just say men because that's who wrote the Bible. However, we do know that women have seen the pattern as well. However, there's a pattern that is being communicated that men are seeing something. And so here's just a, a few interesting statements. Then Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Well, how many people can say that? I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. What's interesting is that's a parallel with Isaiah chapter 6. That's exactly what Isaiah says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. Huh. He saw something. I want you to notate that. The prophets saw something. Here's Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw the Lord in his temple. Huh, interesting. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. That's Amos. Isn't that interesting that the prophets have witnessed something? Moses witnessed something. Moses is called the law in the Old Testament. He's symbolic of the law, the giving of the righteousness of God, the standard of God, the rule of God, the command of God. And yet all then throughout the rest of Scripture, you have the histories which talk about the formation of this tabernacle and then this temple and all the kings in this land. But then you have these prophets. And what are these prophets seeing? They're seeing a pattern. In fact, what you'll see as we go to this next one, to Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually sees on a high mountain a temple. A temple of God that's never been built on this earth. And he gives, a, a, a man attends to him, an angel, with a measuring rod in his hand and measures out for three chapters. And if you have no idea what you're reading, you're just like, this is the boringest thing I've ever read in my life. Who cares? And what does God say to Ezekiel at the end of all these measurements? It's extraordinary. In Ezekiel 43, thou son of man, show the house. Show the house. Uh, by the way, God, I'm seeing it as in a vision. How am I supposed to show it? Uh, doesn't that feel like Christianity right there? You see the cross, and then God says, show them the cross. How about how am I supposed to show them the cross? I'm bewildered that I'm even seeing it right now. Show the house to the house of Israel. He has all the measurements for it. David wrote it down. Moses wrote it down. They wrote it down. And this was the way in which they imparted it through the generations. They witnessed something and then they wrote it so that others could witness it. Show the house to the house of Israel. Why would you show that house to the house of Israel? Three chapters worth of measurements. Why? What does it say? That they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. Uh, if, you, if someone came to you and said, yeah, my uh, bedroom back home is uh, uh, 12 feet by 14 feet, would you be cut to the heart with sin? <laughs> Why would the measurements of a house show a people their iniquity, unless that house was not just a house. That house was perfect righteousness. That house is a person. That house is the way a man is supposed to be measured. Measure the pattern. Stand up next to it. You're not that, are you? You see, you, your walls are not square. They're not plumb. 
Something is wrong in your house. What is your house? Is your house the one that you know, has a, an address here in Windsor, Loveland, Fort Collins, Greeley? This is your house. It's the human body. And the human body was meant to be the dwelling place of God Almighty. It was meant to be a house. It was meant to be an abode. But something's wrong in this house. So God says, measure the pattern. A pattern has been given from the very beginning of perfection. It was revealed to Moses, who gave us the law. It was revealed to the prophets, who said, this one who will match this pattern will come. Measure that pattern. For when he comes, he will be exact. His rooms will be measured this way. You will know it is he, for he will fulfill all law and all prophecy. Everything that has to do with what? The pattern. The pattern has been laid out. It's perfection. The rooms have been measured to perfection. All the walls plumb. All the corners square. And God says, when he comes, measure him. And if he passes that test, you will know it is he. He has come. And he is me, says God. It is God Almighty. The glistening limestone. When the, the temple in the Old Testament was built by Solomon, the building of it is extraordinary, just in and of itself. You know, when you lay a foundation for your house, what material do we use here in America? Now, I'm, I'm sure that there's other ways that you can build houses. My limited understanding of building houses in America is that we use concrete. I'm sure some of you could say, well, there's actually technically some other options. But we use the cheapest stuff we can that will be the firmest and most solid. A good concrete foundation. And yet, you know what God used for his temple? Costly stones. Costly stones. He literally built the foundation of the best stuff. Because, hey, this, this building is going to last forever. Who's the foundation of the church? It's Jesus. You don't just stick in some concrete. It's costly stones. But what's interesting is the outside of the temple was a limestone, and it glistened white, bright white. When the sun would gleam upon it, it would shine glorious. And on the inside, it was gold, plated with gold. So on the inside, it was gold. On the outside, it was white. The high priest would wear gold all year long, and then on the Day of Atonement, he would wear white. And so as a result, to show the glory of God. You see, that temple was a picture of something. It was a house, yes, but it was actually the house. It was the pattern of one to come, the ultimate high priest who is coming and he will measure perfectly with this house. And though he may look like he's clothed in badger skin as a tabernacle, if you have eyes to see, you will recognize that he's actually plated with limestone that he will glisten white, for he is the temple of God made flesh. So the clothing of the holy temple is glistening limestone. So as I was reading with Moses, it says, according to the pattern as shown on the mount, in the New Testament, we have a very, very unique story. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about before I even get there, because you've anticipated this with some of my hints. But did you know that... Jesus, though he was clothed in badger skin and looked like a humble carpenter from Nazareth, at one point in his journeys, very strategically revealed something. 
And there were eyewitnesses of his majesty that beheld it. He glistened like limestone. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. That's typically what it's called. You know that we do not even know what mountain it was in Israel? It really bothers me, too, because when I'm studying, I really want to know which mountain it is. And so there's rumors and theories and various things, and then they argue over it. And it's like, I don't think God wants us to know. For some reason, it could be any mountain. And there's something even about that that may be quite profound. That it could be any mountain that he chooses to reveal his glory. And the mountain isn't the point. It's what's on the mountain. He makes an everyday mountain something very special when he goes up on it. And so the pattern is shown in the mount. So I would like to read you a story. Now, there's three takes on this in the scriptures. We have one in Matthew, one in Mark, and one in Luke. And I had originally all three in my notes, but you know how thick my notes can get. So one of my cuts was to cut out. Oh, but it was so hard because each one shares something unique about it. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. It really is. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. By the way, this is what scripture says. I didn't come up with this. It says that Jesus was transfigured before them. You know, one of the things that really bothers me is when people try and diminish the deity of Jesus Christ. This story in and of itself is so utterly obvious that we're dealing with God Almighty when we're dealing with Jesus Christ. And I don't know how people do their little dance and their gymnastic routine to try and diminish the deity of Jesus Christ, but hey, are we looking at the same scriptures here? Because this man is, in fact, God Almighty. So Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Wait a minute. That looks like the temple. That looks like the limestone temple. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Uh, Did you just read that? Moses and Elijah appear. They're just there. You know what's funny? In the other takes on this, it's in the middle of the night. And Peter, James, and John are like, (laughs) and then they fully wake up, and it says, when they were fully awake, they saw it. When they were fully awake, I, I love how it adds that, because some of us, I could just see it. It's like, well, they were sleeping. They probably dreamed it. All three of them had the same exact dream. It's interesting how God chooses to do this. So, and his clothes became white as the light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Do you see anything about Moses and Elijah that should trigger anything that I've said to you already? Remember the pattern that was revealed? Who was it entrusted to? It was entrusted to Moses. Who would recognize the pattern if he saw it? How about Elijah? He's the chief prophet. Remember who I said? It's the law and the prophets. This is the entire Old Testament. That's symbolic of all the scriptures, the canon. And who are they given witness to? Who are they coming to measure? They're coming to measure the pattern. And they look at him and they say, he's all right with me. Moses and Elijah. What an interesting combo package. Wouldn't that be amazing to be sitting there and just sort of, (laughs) what is that? I mean, this is such an extraordinary story. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
Now, in the other translations, it goes on to talk about the fact that he didn't know what he was saying, and his, we, we all sort of chuckle at Peter because he's a little dizzy right now. He doesn't fully know what to say. And yet, you know, I think it's a fully reasonable concept, but isn't it fascinating that when he sees this, what he thinks about is tabernacles. What he thinks about is a dwelling place. Just sort of a fascinating observation. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to this. Hear him. Hear him. What a statement. This is my beloved son. Are you seeing the witness that is taking place? When Peter is talking about the fact that he's an eyewitness to the majesty of God, do you know what he's referring to? He's referring to this scene. When Peter says that he was an eyewitness, does he have basis to say that he has beheld the glory of God? Does he? And you could say, well, I mean, we've never seen Jesus come in all his power. Are you sure that Peter, James, and John did not see him in all his glory? What is this story? The father literally, literally booms out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. All right, this is, this is a great line. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. All right, I'm going to come back to that line because that is a great line. However, most of us, when we read that, all we, all we hear is, oh, so all of the big stuff had gone away. He's back in his badger skin outfit. He's back at the, as the tabernacle. No longer are you seeing the gleaming white limestone. You're no longer seeing Moses and Elijah. Uh, no cloud around them. They open their eyes and boom, everything's back to normal. Yeah, but that's not the point I would focus on. I would say, what do they see alone? They see Jesus. That's their focus. They have beheld his glory. And now what do they see? They see Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them to do something very specific. This is a very interesting statement. He says, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. You see, they were witnesses of his majesty. And yet, when were they prepared to be true witnesses? Only after they witnessed the resurrection. You see, there's something to that, and I'm going to build on that as we progress. Because up until that time, they were asked not to speak. But when you become a witness of the resurrection life, suddenly something is made ready in you, for you too are an eyewitness of his majesty. The witness of three. One of the things you'll, you'll notice is in this story, we have threes. We have Moses, Elijah, and then the booming voice of the Father. Deuteronomy 19.15, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. In the law of God, perfect righteousness, when someone brings an accusation against someone, it better be with two or three witnesses. If it's a singular witness, then it doesn't hold the same weight as it would in a court of Hebrew law. And God has this as a basic standard of measurement that there is a need for witness. And when there is witness, it comes in clumps, threes, and even the Gospels, four. It's sort of like three not enough for you? Hey, John, could you write one too? In other words, God is giving witness of his majesty. 
The tabernacle of witness. You know, that's actually what the tabernacle in the Old Testament is called in the wilderness. It's called the tabernacle of witness. What? It is literally a testimony in and amongst them. This pattern, are you witnessing this? And even inside, before that mercy seat, there are things laid up as a witness, as a token against the rebels to say those that believe, why do we believe? Do you recognize what God has done in our midst? He parted the Red Sea. Don't you remember the Passover? Don't you remember what he did when we put the blood of the lamb on our doorpost? You see, this is all a witness to a nation. But every single point of witness you'll see throughout the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus. Every single one of them. The tabernacle of witness, which had, and this is in Hebrews 9, which had the golden censer and the Ark of Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, I don't know if these were in the ark. That's always been my assumption. Uh, Yet, they're in the tabernacle of witness. That's what we do know. These three things are in the tabernacle of witness. Let's, Let's look at them real quick. The witness of the three in the chamber of witness. The golden pot that had the manna. Who's the manna that came down from heaven? Jesus. Supernaturally supplied food in the midst of the wilderness. It's Jesus. Aaron's rod that budded. If you've heard canon, you know how powerful that is. That's the rod of God. The rod that buds. It's Jesus. The canon. Three, the tablets of the covenant. Perfect righteousness. That's Jesus. So in this tabernacle of witness, we have the three witnesses. The three witnesses that all witness to what? What do they show us when we go into the tabernacle and we muse, we we look around? What do we see? We see Jesus. You see, everything in the Old Testament, everything that is the witness throughout history is witnessing to one that will come. Not to just what God did, but what God will do. What God will always do, for this is his nature. The witness of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. The father, the I am. Yeah, you know what? That's about enough for me. I I think I'll believe. I think that's sufficient for me. Moses, Elijah, and then the booming voice of the I am. Yeah, I'm a believer. You see, God is establishing his eyewitness account on this earth. And this is how he chose to do it. His way. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Search Moses. Search the prophets. They are they which testify of me. The Mount of Transfiguration. They are they which testify of Jesus Christ. The Father testifies of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. Moses testifies of Jesus. The prophets testify of Jesus. Search the scriptures. They testify. When he says of me, that's Jesus talking. They testify of me. That pattern, as shown in the mount, it's Jesus. It's him. He's the one. He's the one it points to. The witness of the three disciples. Isn't it interesting that he asked three to be with him? You see, it's not accidental. Three. Three witnesses. Peter, James, and John. When he says, we witnessed, it's a we. It's a three. And that witness is substantial in a Hebrew court of law. Their testimony is binding. The witness of the three. You might not be familiar with these words. We would pronounce it logos, ethos, and pathos. 
The Greeks have a funny pronunciation for it. However, this, like for instance, Aristotle would argue what he would call the three key factors of persuasion or argument. And so if he was teaching someone like a debater of how to reason, a philosopher how to reason, he says, anyone who's going to communicate something unto a place of convincing, they must have three essentials. They must have logos, ethos, and pathos. And you're like, what in the world is that? Well, logos. In the Greek, it's pronounced logos. But you remember in the very beginning of the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that word for word is logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And so what logos means, it could be translated into word. It's a statement. It's a carrying device for an idea. But probably the best way of us understanding is it's the fact. It's the revelation of God. It's just the data that proves. It's the logos. And it's always been there. It's God. God is that. He's the logos. And so first we have the fact of the revelation of God. The witness declares he is the word of God made flesh. All of that in the Old Testament. You know that pattern in the Old Testament? The witness declares. The scriptures themselves. The four gospels and all the New Testament. What does it declare? He is. He is the word of God. He is the logos made flesh. He's that tabernacle and that temple on two feet. He's the manna. He's the rod. What, how did that work? It, but it did. That's what the witness testifies to. That's what the scriptures declare to us. They say, do you see it? He is the logos. He is the fact. He is the revelation. He is the pattern made flesh. He is the logos. So the logos is going to be like the architectural blueprint. It's just the pattern. And he is that pattern. So what do we say? We witness that he is the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of all prophecy. You see, we have, we can be eyewitnesses. The scriptures have been given to us. And what does the Spirit of God lead us to? Leads us to Moses. And we say, Moses, who are you talking about? What did you see in that mount? And then Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, that's what I saw. That's what I saw. And all of us step back in awe. Are you saying that all those thousands of years you saw Jesus? He goes, I testify of it to you now. How about you, prophets? What do you say? For you say he must be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. You say his name must be Emmanuel, God with us. You say that he will come forth out of Egypt. You say that he'll be betrayed by a friend. You say that he'll ride a colt into Jerusalem. You say that they will pierce his hands and feet and pierce his side. And they will divide his garments amongst them. You say that. And what do we say back? He is. He is the pattern. He's the pattern made flesh. He fulfills all of Moses. He fulfills all the prophecies. And so our response to the Logos is, I believe. He is. Ethos. That's a word that the emergent church has tried to grab a hold of and take. Well, it's just a word. However, it's a good word, but I always 
sort of try and steer away from it because it's been sort of marred. I can't ever use the word emergent either. It's like, yes, and we're emerging as a church. Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> and so ethos is one of those words I don't know how to deal with, how to get close to. It's a great word, though. Basically, it's going to be the trustworthiness of something. It's their ethical nature. So ethos, when you get the word ethic, that's where it comes from. It comes from this concept of ethos or character or trustworthiness. So the trustworthiness, the unalterable nature of God, God's ethos, it doesn't change. He cannot lie. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is good. He is pure. He is holy. He is righteous. That's his ethos. And so for, as, as Aristotle would say, for an argument, a persuasion unto convincing, you need logos and you need ethos. And so it's so fascinating because God doesn't play to Aristotle's likings. He just is. And if Aristotle just happens to be right, so be it. However, this is actually what God has done. God communicated the logos. He gave the blueprint and then fulfilled it. But he also has demonstrated that he is trustworthy. The scriptures say it very simply. He is faithful and true. He is faithful and true. So the witness declares he is the faithful and true witness. So what do we say in response? When you see the faithfulness of God, when you see that he matches the blueprint, that he is never altered, that he is always the same yesterday, today, and forever, what happens in a soul? Well, it's called faith. You see, when you see this and you see the constancy of your God, ethos is the concept of believing in his trustworthiness. And to believe in his trustworthiness and his ability to do what he says he's going to do and to perform that which he promises is called faith. For us, his ethos is the makings of our faith. You see, he has fulfilled the blueprint, the logos, and he has demonstrated his perfect nature throughout because he must be the same yesterday, today, and forever. When the promise comes 2,000 years ago and then it's fulfilled, he says, I tell you now before it happens, why? So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. That's what he says. So he says, look, I told you all this beforehand so that when it does happen, you will see me as faithful and true. You will recognize my ethos. You will recognize that I am worthy of your trust. And we say, I believe. And that's the work of faith within us. We don't just see it, see the pattern fulfilled and then just walk away. No, we see it, we see his faithfulness and we say, and I give my life to you for you are trustworthy. So we witness that he is without lie, without exaggeration, without discrepancy, without sin, and no guile is found in his mouth. Pathos. Now, pathos is one of the only words that's actually used today. You could go to a dictionary and probably find the word pathos, whereas ethos needs to be like a, a postmodern dictionary. So pathos is the concept typically used in acting. And so someone has like their pathos, and then all the audience is like crying as they're watching it. Like, oh, you just bring them and they identify with your character's difficulties and sufferings and agonies. Well, there's something to this that's very, very important. You see, one of the reasons Aristotle brings that up as one of the three dimensions of convincing an audience is if your audience doesn't care, well, then they'll walk away passively. They need to care. They need to understand how this affects them. You see, God has not just done it. He's not just fulfilled the perfect blueprint. He hasn't just done it in perfect faithfulness without changing, but he's also somehow wooed us to an understanding that what he did is necessary for us. 
And we find ourselves crying out, struck to the heart. We feel the pain. We feel the agony of it. And when we see that he suffered, that he died for us, there's a love bond that is created. It's pathos. And what it does is part of the convincing. I don't just trust this man. I love him. I don't just think he's true, but he is my savior, my Lord, my beloved. He is my shepherd, my bridegroom. And I will yield my life to him as one would unto a husband. I love him. It's not an amazing thought, pathos. But pathos in a very simple Greek sense is suffering. That's, that's what it means. The physical griefs of God. So you have the perfect blueprint, you have the character and the nature, and then you have the suffering of God. The three things needed to convince. And what does God have as his three witnesses? God has laid out the blueprint. He has proven himself faithful through all the ages. And then he comes to the cross. He ties all three together. You see, you know what the prophets, what Moses and the prophets all believed in? You know what they were saved by? You know what Abraham was saved by? He didn't have the cross. He had faith in the one who would come. He knew the pattern. He knew the one who was sure and faithful to his word. He knew it and he believed. And as a result, he was saved. He was rescued by that faith. However, for him, the action of the pathos of God was still to come. For us, it's in the rearview mirror. It's past tense, but it has the same work upon us. We still believe. We didn't see it with our eye. But at the same time, we do. Even though it's 2,000 years later, Abraham saw it. And yet, he didn't see it with his natural eye. He saw it. And he knew and he believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And though we don't see it with our natural eye, the three forms of witness have been given to us. He is that pattern. He has perfectly fulfilled the blueprint. He is faithful and true. And his sufferings were for you to redeem you. So the witness declares he is the suffering servant. What do we witness? We witness that he is. He has borne in his very own body the marks of our redemption. So the winning of a soul, when you are actually delivering, like when, when God says to Ezekiel, share the pattern or show the house, you're like, how in the world am I supposed to show a vision? How am I supposed to show them the glory of God? How do I do this? The winning of the soul, the power of spiritual persuasion, one of the things that we need to recognize is that we can't win a soul. At the same time, we are part of the process. We are a tool that God uses. God uses Ezekiel's. God uses Elijah's. God uses Moses. But Moses can't save us. Elijah can't save us. It's only Jesus that can. Our faith isn't in Moses. Our faith isn't in Elijah. Our faith is in Jesus. And the same is true with us. Though it is now in the rearview mirror for us, we testify in the Mount of Transfiguration just like Moses and Elijah. God has changed me. You see, that law and those prophets are revealed in Jesus, and Jesus has changed me. And we become a witness to his glory. And the world around us beholds what God has done in us, and they say, truly, he is the Son of God. The winning of a soul. So listen to this logic. This is for how God grips us. If he is the perfect fulfillment in exact agreement with the logos of God, and he is without sin in perfect alignment with the ethos of God, the character of God, then 
His sufferings are truly the pathos of God for my sake, able to accomplish for me precisely what they promise, according to his ethos and his, log, and his logos, that which they will certainly accomplish. God has made it clear, and he cannot lie. So when you put your confidence in his logos and in his ethos, then you have an understanding that his pathos and his suffering is for you. Because he said it. He made it clear. He said, Eric, believe. Believe on me and you'll be saved. You see my work for you. You see my sufferings? They were done for you so that you might live. And I say, because he matches the logos and because his ethos is so perfect, I believe. And as a result, his sufferings really do save me. And now I have, I am entered into the pathos of God. The sufferings of God become mine. And I share in their benefits, in their strength, and the glory they'll manifest in my life. The triumvirate of truth, sorry to bring out a big word, triumvirate means three. It's a weaving of three, like a cord of three strands. The triumvirate of truth. So I'm gonna introduce you indirectly to the concept of truth. Truth is what I just described to you. It's logos, ethos, and pathos. That's, that's what truth is. However, it's the weaving of those we call truth. That is what we believe in. His word is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's truth. He is all three. He is the fulfillment of the pattern. So the triumvirate, so the weaving of three, the witness of three woven together called truth. Logos, we'll call it fact. Ethos, we'll call trust. And pathos, we'll call feeling and experience. But for all the Ellerslie students in here, let's just get down to business. We'll call it the triumvirate of truth and say fact, faith, and experience. That's what it is. That's truth. What do we believe? We believe in a certain order. A lot of us, the enemy will try and disturb us with experience, with pathos, and appeal to our emotions. Emotions aren't what we follow. You come to the New Testament and say, how do I feel about it? You'll probably die in your bad feelings. But what you do is you come to the scriptures and say, this is the pattern. Did he fulfill it? It's very simple. He has revealed himself in and through the law and the prophets. Is it he or not? Let's just get down to the facts. Let's follow fact. If he matches the fact, then guess what? We recognize that he is the ethos of God. He has the character and the nature of God to back it up. And that's our faith. Our faith is in his fact. He has done it. And he will continue to do it. We believe in the clear revelation of scripture. And then what happens? our experience begins to line up. Do you know that that's part of the testimony to us? First we believe, but then our experience lines up. And when our experience lines up, we're an unstoppable train called the Christian. Why? Someone tries to talk us out of Jesus Christ being the logos of God, the ethos of God, and that his pathos work was for us. You've gotta be kidding, good luck. I've been convinced. I've been convinced. Not only did I see it in his word that he fulfilled it, not only do I see his trustworthiness, I am an eyewitness to his majesty, but he has proven it in my life. And now by actual feeling and experience, I can testify. God's word is true. I believe. I'm called a believer, otherwise known as a Christian. I believe. Entering into the triumvirate of truth. Now, this is a very specific statement. What's your position, students? Jesus Christ. See, you are in the triumvirate of truth, in that power of witness. God has done it in and through his son, and you have entered into Jesus Christ. So entering into the triumvirate of truth, 
Ephesians 6, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Who is the armor of God? It's Jesus. That's what you put on. What are we clothed in? We're clothed in Jesus. So the armor of God is Jesus. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, now I only included the first of the seven pieces of the armor because I'm making a point. Having girded your waist with truth. How does the Christian life start? How does true faith start? It starts with the triumvirate. It starts with you beholding that majesty, with you seeing the cross. That cross work is for me. You must see it for yourself. You cannot borrow my vision of it. I may have gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. I may have seen the transfigured Christ, the glorified Christ, and then I come down and I say, no, it's real. He really is the Messiah. And you could walk off. You must be awakened. Your eyes must be opened, and you must see it too. And you can say, how can I see it? It's sort of hard to explain, but those of you that have seen it, you know what I mean. You're blind one day, and you're thinking through it all intellectually. You're like, how does this work? And then one day... You see it, and you're like, that cross work was for me. He is the Messiah. He is God Almighty. And then your life is changed, for you have entered into the triumvirate of truth, and that truth will set you free. You see, you have been belted in, girded is the term, pulled tight with truth. The belt is the centerpiece. The belt is what the breastplate even attaches to. The sword slides into the sheath. It's a part of the belt. If you do not have the truth, you do not have the armor. You start with the triumvirate of truth. Do you know that he is? Do you know that it is God? He has come to rescue you. Do you know that he is faithful and true? Has that been revealed to your soul? If it's not, you don't have faith. You must know the basics. Get the truth on. And now we can stick on the rest of the armor. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. I, I, I know it's very easy. I've, I've read this scripture so many times at Ellerslie. But if you're visiting, I need to say it. It doesn't say he is faithful. It says you must believe that he is that's a statement back to the Old Testament understanding of the Hebrews. Jehovah or Yahweh, Yahweh, depending on how you would pronounce it, there's all sorts of varying ways, are the creative word to cover up for a Hebrew who does not feel comfortable saying the Tetragrammaton, the proper name of God as revealed to Moses at the burning bush. But that name was I am. The, the word in the Hebrew is Aye. It means I am, but we don't call God A.A. Why? Because that would be like saying I am, but I'm not. He is. And so what we say is Yahweh, which means he is. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Do you know who he is? Have you been introduced to the I am? You know what that means? The same. Yesterday today and forever. That's what the concept of I am means. It's like 
He was, and he is, and he always will be. He just is. And he's always the same. He will never alter. Therefore, you put your trust in that. The logos and the ethos. And that the I am has come and saved you. You know what Jesus' name means? It's the word I am, or the name I am, mixed with saves. The I am has saved you. That's what his name means. So if you are going to have faith in Jesus Christ, you better start with the I am. You come to him and say, you are. And you saved me. He is my salvation. That's the name of Jesus. He is my salvation. And that's Jesus. The pattern. That's what has been revealed from the very beginning all through. Don't you see it? He is our salvation. There it is again. Isaiah 53. He's saying he is our salvation. Psalm 22. He's saying he is our salvation. All throughout the Bible, he is our salvation. The question is, are you and I witness? Have you seen it? Do you know that? For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The belt of rainbow. Do you remember what we had? We have the belt. We're girding the belt of truth. So the truth is the triumvirate, is the rainbow, is another way of saying it, the symbol of the I am. You know that the I am is symbolized with a rainbow. He has sort of a symbol, a logo, if you will. And so after the flood, what does he stick in the sky? As a statement that he will not change and he will not alter. He has made a promise and he will abide by that promise. What's his symbol? It's a bow in the clouds. It's a seven-colored bow. And that seven-colored bow is a symbol of his nature. His manifold grace, his manifold wonder, it never alters. You notice that a rainbow today has the same exact color scheme? Same exact, same exact order. Well, that's strange. That's because it's a symbol of God. It doesn't change. It doesn't alter. From generation to generation, a rainbow will be the same. Isn't it funny that you have more confidence sometimes in a rainbow to stay the same than you do in your God to stay the same? And yet a rainbow is only an external emblem of his nature. So, the belt of the rainbow... You know that what we're supposed to put around our waist? It's the rainbow. It's the I am. What's truth? Jesus is truth. Remember who Jesus is? I am. That saves. What do you stick around your waist? You pull tight. I am has saved me. And I am can save you. Well, that's just Christianity. The symbol of the I am. And the curious girdle, that is one of the funniest statements. I almost had this message on the curious girdle, by the way, which would have been a funny title. Curious girdle. The reason they call it that, just as a side, the reason they call it the curious girdle, because it doesn't say curious in the Hebrew. It just says girdle, but it really doesn't even say girdle. It's a hard word to translate. They know, all the people know it's talking about a belt, because it's actually something that the high priest wore. But curious means it's an elaborate invention. It's ingenious. The word ingenious comes from that word. The word engineer, the word engine, come from that word. It's the engine. It's the rainbow. Listen to this. And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, this is the clothing of the high priest, shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen. It's a rainbow. And that's what everyone throughout history has understood it as. Those are the colors of the rainbow. Of course, we know that there's some other shadings in there, but those yellow, blue, purple, and red, those are the colors of the rainbow and what is the belt made of. 
the invention of God, the engineering of God, he has worked salvation. And he has done it! I am saved! Put it around your belts! Put it around your middle and hold everything together. That is salvation. Everything else about Christ fits to it. You must know that he is. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness round about. What are we seeing here in Ezekiel? We're seeing a vision of God. So we're seeing a vision of God, but very specifically, we're seeing one likened unto Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now listen closely. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spoke. What did Ezekiel see? He saw this brightness. And what did he see around that brightness? The colors of a rainbow. What is around God? His nature, the testimony, the witness of his nature. He doesn't change. The I am symbol surrounds him. Now look at this scripture. And he that sat, and this is in Revelation, by the way, and we're talking about Jesus. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. What surrounds God? What's the belt around God? (sighs) I am. I am he. I do not change. It's a symbol. What's your symbol? What do you wrap around your waist? What is the basis of coming unto God? The belt. The belt of the I am. Do you know him? as your God? Do you know him as your savior? Do you recognize that he is? Passing along the vision. So somehow Moses gets the vision and Moses is asked by God to write it down in a book. And even though nations, empires have tried to stamp out this book, the the empires get stamped out as they try and do it. This book continues, and the revelation of this pattern is preserved all throughout the ages and generations. And then David inherits a vision of the temple, and he passes it along to his son. So we have from Moses, somehow it gets to David, and from David to Solomon, from Solomon to the prophets, and from the prophets to the apostles. Where do you think the apostles got the test to measure the pattern from? Well, they got it from Moses to David, to David to Solomon, Solomon to the prophets, and then the apostles had it. And they measured the house. And what did they do? They got so excited, they turned the world on its head. You see, they witnessed his majesty. It's him! It's him! He is! And the world will never be the same. First, what is the vision? I know I gave this away way too early. Could you imagine if I'd saved this up until now? It's Jesus. The vision of the entire Bible is of Jesus. I am will save you. I am has saved you. I am will continue to save you. There's the vision of the entire Bible right there. I am will save you. I am has saved, has saved you, and I am will continue to save you. He will save you to the uttermost. Oh, I love it. I'm far more excited about it than you are, though. Oh, this is amazing. It's Jesus. What did the apostles do with this vision? So they were entrusted with the vision. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. What did they do with it? Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first 
Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So now we have the molding and the shaping of Paul. Paul, and we'll also see Peter and John say the exact same thing. But Paul is this incredible sampling in the New Testament of a man who beholds the majesty of God. He's actually knocked off a horse and the bright light blinds him. He sees and witnesses this majesty firsthand. And what does he say? Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern. Wait a minute. Paul is now a pattern bearer. As you saw it in the mount, Paul, now declare it. And Paul, but his mount is his life. It's the temple, it's the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle is what they were always witnessing. But now Paul realizes, do you not know that we are the very place that God dwells? And now we are the picture of that pattern? So for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. You have us for a pattern. You see, how do we see Jesus now? We see him clearly in and through the pattern of the belief and the life and the love of the saints of God. Jesus is still showing forth his glory. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Have you witnessed the pattern? Do it. Paul was a pattern that they may follow. Jesus was the pattern. And they witnessed it. And then, and then God says, go. Go and deliver that pattern. Go and give that pattern to the world. Show them the house. Show them the house that they may be convicted in their sin. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Ugh, what a statement. Be ye followers of me, he says in a different spot, even as I also am of Christ. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. You are witnesses. What an interesting statement. He said, you're seeing it. You are witnesses. And God also, how holily, that's a funny word, and justly and unblameably, we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Do you see it? We are demonstrating the pattern of Jesus Christ in our lives, and you are now witnesses. You have witnessed this. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. And what are we to do with this example? So you're seeing the pattern. Paul, Peter, James, John, the apostles, the 120, they witnessed something. They witnessed it firsthand. What did they do with it? They became a pattern. And they shared the pattern. They showed the world the house. Now you're part of the world that has seen the house. What are you supposed to do with it? And in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing incorruptness, gravity, sincerity. He says to Titus, show yourself a pattern now. Well, he's discipled by Paul. He saw the pattern of Paul, who saw the pattern of Jesus, who saw the pattern of Moses all the way through the prophets. And now he says to Titus, now you show yourself a pattern. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. What a statement. Be thou a pattern of what it means to believe. You are supposed to be a pattern in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. 
Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. You do not lord it over. If you're a leader in the church, you do not lord it over people. You do not diminish them and put them under your thumb. No. You're supposed to be an example. You know what a leader in the church is supposed to be? A pattern. That's what we're supposed to be. We follow Paul, who followed Christ. We follow, very simply, Christ. And you follow a leader as a leader follows Christ. What makes an eyewitness? Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until. Until what? Until the son of man is risen from the dead. Now I... I'm answering my question in a very creative way, but I'll break it down for you. So the triumvirate witness of true eyewitnesses. You see, God is giving witness to the eyewitnesses. They are seeing something, but he's doing something very specifically because it's useful for us to be seen as well. They hear him. Do you hear him? And you could say, well, how can I hear him? You know that he has given us witness on this earth of his great and mighty work throughout the ages. He has given us the law and the prophets. We actually have it. We have the witness of the Spirit of God. We have the witness of the saints around us. We have witness. Are we hearing that witness? God Almighty comes down and says, hear him. Hear what? Jesus. You can say, well, he's not talking today. Oh, sure he is. When the Spirit of God has come, he's come to take of the words of Jesus and speak them to you. When the Spirit of God is speaking to you and he draws from the Word of God, he's speaking Jesus to you. Listen, heed him, hear him. They see none but him. What happens to a true eyewitness? Their eyes are forever fixed. Moses and Elijah are no longer the focus. It's what Moses and Elijah point to that becomes the focus. No longer is he just a carpenter in badger skin. Suddenly he's the transfigured Christ even though He's in badger skin. He's humble and lowly. But that's the I am. And they know it. I know Jesus looks humble. And he is. It's his nature. I know he was born to a little girl and he seems to be illegitimate. However, you know better. He was born of a virgin. You know it. How do you know that? Because you've heard him. He spoke to you through his word. And you believed because you know his nature and his character. This is God. I know he looks weak, dying on a cross seemingly as a criminal, but in that death you see something different than the rest of the world does. You see triumph and victory. That's where he did it. And everyone laughs and goes, oh, on the cross as a criminal? Yeah. I know you see badger skin, but I see a transfigured, glorified Christ. He won that day. It was finished that day. Oh, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. Yeah, but... That's not what you see. You see an empty tomb. You see him seated at the right hand of the Father. What do you see? I know what the world sees, but what do you see? There were two thieves on that cross, on the cross, crosses next to him. One saw nothing but a pile of criminal dirt next to him. Mocked him, ridiculed him, but the other thief saw something. 
he saw something more than almost anyone in the crowd saw. You know what he said? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How many of you would ever think of going to a criminal who's dying and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom, for I know you're a king? Do you see a king hanging on that cross? Do you see the victor of all victors, the champion of all champions? What do you see? Third, they are witnesses of the resurrection life. You see, they were told to stay silent. God gave them the vision of the majesty. And then he said, hold your tongue because you're not yet ready to deliver and to be my eyewitness. You need something. And isn't that proven in Peter's life? Peter saw this, but what does he do at the Passover? What does he do when Jesus is being scourged and mocked and being carted away? He denies him three times. You see, he wasn't yet ready for what he had seen. He'd seen it, but he needed something. He needed power. He needed the indwelling life, the indwelling resurrection life. The very spirit that raised Christ from the dead must dwell in him. And until it did, he was not yet ready to be the eyewitness. 2 Peter 1, for this reason I will not... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. He has just started this epistle, and he has made a statement that all things are available to you for life and godliness, everything you need. And then he goes through what's known as the the graces of God, and he says, add to your faith virtue. And he goes through all the way unto love. And then he says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, that you have all things in Christ. Everything you could possibly need. Don't you realize how big he is? And so this is Peter. Remember where Peter was? Peter was on that mountain. And he witnessed something. And he has the resurrection life. He has testified at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He has testified before the Sanhedrin. He has made his case. He is a witness. And he is bold now. No longer is he cowering before a little girl. And saying, I know, I know him not. But now he's saying, I know him. I know the resurrected Christ who sits enthroned at the right hand of God Almighty. And he says, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent or in this body to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, after my dying. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. You know what the word word is there? Logos. We have the prophecy and the logos confirmed. It's actually what it says. We have the logos and the ethos confirmed in experience at the cross. We are convinced The prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Have you yet eyewitnessed his glory? What's the good of a message like this if it doesn't somehow get to the real point 
God doesn't want you to know about other eyewitnesses. He wants you to be an eyewitness. He wants you to witness his work. He wants you to witness his glory. Did you accept his invitation up the mountain? Come, follow me, he says. Where, where, where are you going? Will you trust me? Did you, hear and, did you see and hear what the law and the prophets say of this Jesus? Do you, are you overhearing Moses and Elijah talk? Are you listening to their voice? Because they all speak of Jesus. Do you see them paying homage, saying, this is he? When you're on that mount, I know you're a little tired. We live in a, in a war-torn, carnal world, and it's very difficult to get our focus. But do you hear what Moses is saying? Do you hear what the prophets are saying of this Jesus? Did you hear the booming voice of God declare his godness to you? He is God. Do you hear it? The Father himself says, this is my son. He's born of me. I am his father. He wasn't born illegitimate. He was born of a virgin, conceived of by God himself. He is my son. He is of my nature. He came from me. I sent him because I loved you. Will you receive that? Did you heed the thunderous voice of the Almighty that spoke to your soul? Hear him. How do you handle the words of Scripture? Did you heed the Almighty when he said, hear him? Hear him. Were your eyes open to see his glory, his high and exalted position? Do you see a man that died a criminal's death that was laid in a borrowed grave? Or do you see the ultimate champion of champions who conquered sin and death and decapitated and crushed the head of Satan and now sits triumphant and throned on high at the right hand of majesty? What do you see? Do you see it? Were you an eyewitness to his majesty? Have you witnessed his resurrection life? You either have or you haven't. And you know when you have. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I am no longer as I used to be. My old man no longer lives. He's dead. He's crucified with Christ. And now I live. You see, I have resurrection life in Christ Jesus. Do you? You must be a witness, an eyewitness of this majesty. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, is what Peter says. And listen to this next line. He says, I have the logos and I have the ethos confirmed. I'm convinced because I've witnessed it all, which you do well to heed. Will you heed the word of scripture? Will you heed Jesus? Will you heed the scriptures, the text? Will you heed the promises? Will you heed the prophecies? Will you recognize that he is the pattern? Will you? Listen to 1 John. Now this is just amazing. This is another one of the witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life. Sandy was saying to me earlier today, she said, look what it says. It says that they are to show unto us that same eternal life. Which was with the Father and was manifested to us. They are a witness and they are to show now. They were shown and now they show. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. 
It all leads to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. When you see the transfigured Christ, uh, why would you need to see anything else? You have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. You see, you have seen the majesty on high. And now, though you still are pretty amazed that Moses and the prophets all point to Jesus, the whole point is Jesus. If you have a treasure map, and you have the treasure that the map points to, which one's more valuable? The treasure map is very valuable, because without the treasure map, you won't find the treasure. But which one's more valuable? You could say, well, I guess the treasure. Yeah. You know why the treasure map's even valuable? Because it points to the treasure. Why is Moses and the prophets valuable to us? And why will we give up our lives to preserve every jot and tittle? Is because it points to the pattern made flesh. It points to Jesus Christ. That is the point. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Have you seen it? Have you beheld the cross? Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.